welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 16th, works for George Romero. So yeah, we're finally here. We're going to be talking about the late, great George Romero. And uh, by the way, if you hear a bit of a humming going in the background, I've just got like a fan and a heater running. It's It's weird. But... So we're going to be talking about a handful of Romero's works today. Uh, we've got, of course, the Dead series, not just Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, but also you know, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, all the way to Survival of the Dead, which was his last movie overall. We've also got The Crazies, and we've got the... And we've got a couple lesser-known ones from him. We've got... Uh, Martin is, you know, famous vampire movie, at least famous among, you know, Romero buffs. And we've got The Amusement Park, which was less of a horror movie and more of a sort of narrative PSA that Romero did, commissioned by a Lutheran service group um, in uh, Philadelphia, I believe. Now... I figured we'd open up with one of, in my opinion, Romero's best, even if it's not the most widely seen. Because, you know, like, Dawn of the Dead, the original one, and this are not very widely seen because the producer, uh, Rick Rubenstein, like, he has just been asking a ridiculous amount to get the you know, home video release rights for these things to the point where Martin had like a few VHS releases and then not much after that, after everything went digital, I actually had to like order a region free international copy to get my own Blu-ray for it. Supposedly second sight films in the UK, not only is doing a region free region free Blu-ray of it soon, but we're all but apparently they also found the director's cut, which, you know, the original, as it is, is like an hour and 35 minutes. This is almost three and a half hours. So, you know, that would be interesting to see, uh, even if it's not the most accessible thing. <laughs> and we've got... So I figured we'd start with Martin. And... It's a vampire movie, in a sense. We've got Martin, played by the actor John Amplis. And, you know, he looks like late teens to early 20s. And yet, somehow, he's entirely convinced that he is an 84-year-old old vampire. And he drinks blood, he does the whole thing. But... You know, he doesn't have the fangs, he doesn't have the mystic powers. He is not affected by sunlight or garlic or silver or holy images or any of that stuff. So it's kind of odd to see why he thinks he's a vampire. But what he does instead is that, you know, he he drinks the blood, but he does so by, you know, uh, ambushing people, mostly women. Uh, injecting them with a sedative, and then drinking the blood through wounds inflicted with a razor blade. 
you get sent to... He moves to Braddock, Pennsylvania to live with his superstitious uncle, uh, Kuda, who also believes uh, Martin is a vampire. And, you know, just so Kuda doesn't catch on, he tries to prey exclusively on, like, you know, street thugs and, you know, criminals. And a lot of the movie is just that, as well as uh, trying to... Trying to avoid prosecution, obviously. Trying to avoid pissing off Kuda. But he's also... He also ends up falling in love with this, um... You know... Uh... A local... A local housewife. Uh... Names... Mrs. Santini. And, you know, it might seem just like kind of a gimmicky thing to call it a vampire movie. You might want to wonder why. And why it's even bothering this when it could just be like a drama about this like delusional serial killer. And, you know, it it plays around with that a little bit too because whenever Martin's like chasing down his prey, it cuts to like this you know, monochrome kind of romanticized image of like, you know, him as the classic seductive old world vampire. When in fact, he's just chasing someone down in a 70s suburban house with all the fucking ugly ass decor that goes with it. I think they just shot in like a whole bunch of people's homes because this was like a pretty low budget thing even by the standards of the day. Uh, you know, he get... You know, and obviously there's, you know, still the tension with Kuda, um, and it's also kind of straining relationships between Kuda and Kuda's granddaughter, Christina. But, you know, Martin keeps a low profile by getting a job with Kuda at the local butcher shop. And as far as the whole vampire thing goes, it's just the whole, you know, I got really tired of the whole humans are the real monsters trope a long time ago, but, you know, Romero's one of those guys that does it pretty well. It's the whole thing, because Kuda is an old-school, like, Lithuanian Catholic. He's very devout. He treats Martin like an old-world vampire. He calls him Nosferatu. He tries to repel Martin with... You know, traditional methods like a crucifix and strings of garlic. Martin mocks these to the point where at one, to the point where at one point in the movie, he actually dresses up in like a Dracula outfit, puts like a fog machine in Kuda, and just starts making like menacing gestures at him, just to like play around with his head. But Martin mocks the attempts and says rather bitterly, "There's no real magic, never." And that's basically Romero in a nutshell. He's, you know, I wouldn't call his movies like misanthropic, but they're very, they're very cynical. Like it wasn't like Land of the Dead where it's just like fucking let the zombies have it. It wasn't quite that like misanthropic yet, but it was still pretty sullen and cynical. And 
it's getting to that idea that we invented monsters like this because we needed to rationalize why other humans would act like so horribly towards each other. And like I said, everyone involved in this was like giving it their absolute fucking all with the acting and the performances. Uh, Kuda is also played by Lincoln Mazel, who is a uh, actor that we will talk about later when we get to the amusement park. And and I think it's just I mean Romero did basically say that whole thing about you know humans being the monster thing and he pretty much wrote that himself he said you can't just slice off this evil part of ourselves and throw it away it's a permanent part of us that we need to try and understand. And that's basically what he tried to show with Martin. And it works because, you know, Martin is just, he's creepy, but he's kind of the classic image of the charming devil, basically. He's a very, he's a bit, he's a bit socially awkward, but, you know, he's well-spoken, he's charming. He'd never really give you much indication that he meant any ill, meant any sort of harm towards anyone. But, and the funny thing about Amplis, like, playing uh, Martin, is that Romero saw Amplis in a Pittsburgh production of Philemon, a, an old off-Broadway show by uh, Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt. And he rewrote the part because Martin was initially supposed to be, like, an older man and an actual vampire, where it's just, now it's just a delusional, you know, serial killer who thinks he is. And, and like I said, it's kind of a shame that so few people have seen it. It's such a shame that it's like so hard to get a decent copy of it. Um, and I'm really hoping that that region, region free Blu-ray comes out at some point because the idea of seeing like the you know director's cut that was almost twice the original the final runtime and especially given the fact that it's not only a creepy movie but in Romero style it has a bit of like humor to it very dark and morbid humor obviously but there's this funny scene where, you know, Martin's staking out this woman's house because he wants to, you know, come in and drink her blood. So he kind of, like, stakes the place out, surveils it, waits for her husband to leave because apparently he's going to be gone for a couple days. And he breaks in to attack her, and then he catches the... <laughs> he catches her in bed with a different man. That guy's initially trying to, like, you know play the situation down until she's like, no, you don't understand, that's not my husband. And then they just sort of look at each other, and then it just has this sort of, like, madcap, wacky chase through the house. Because <laughs> the guy is, like, trying to, you know, at the very least, like, catch this guy and see if, you know, he could be trusted to keep his mouth shut, or worse, you know, kill him, because he's a home intruder. But it does have... I mean, it wasn't without its detractors. A lot of people found it, you know, I hate this word again, 
I fucking hate the word pretentious, but there were people that called it that. But, you know, it's got the expected gore. It's got a little bit of social satire in it. And, you know, it's very thoughtful. And it ends on a wonderful... It ends on a wonderful high. So, you know, if you can find it uh, physically, give it a watch. If you want to see it um, before buying it, I will include a link in the description of this episode that you can copy-paste to go watch it. Uh, Hopefully the channel still has it uh, by the time you listen to this episode and decide to check it out. But, you know. Well, that's Martin. And moving on. Alright, so next up we have The Crazies. Another one of Romero's movies to get a sort of, like, piece of crap remake. Okay, maybe I'm being a little too harsh. The remake wasn't that bad. Uh, Yeah, this wasn't Romero's best movie, honestly, but I like it anyway, and especially given the fact that, you know, again, it was a pretty big accomplishment for something that was such a small budget, and it also was sort of like a, you know, predecessor to, you know, a different type of zombie movie, the 28 Days Later type. Or Resident Evil, if you prefer. Um, so basically what happens here is that we find out later... What we open with is a little boy and a little girl going around their house. Brothers, you know, being a dick and trying to scare his sister. But then we cut to a different part of the house, and the dad is just going, like, homicidally insane. Like, he's just smacking everything up with a crowbar. He's breaking shit. And, you know, the kids, as you might imagine, decide to run for it. And their dad kills his wife, sets the place on fire. We find out later the reason this is happening is because there is a virus going around. See, about a week or about a week prior to this, there was a plane that crashed nearby this little town. And the cover story was that it was a sort of experimental vaccine. What we find out is that it was in fact a bioweapon that the army was working on. And what essentially happens is that it infects you and then it makes you horribly delirious and then kills you or it makes you, basically, it makes you go insane. Like It basically makes it so that you are just permanently angry, like unreasonably fuck-ass mad all of the time to the point that you don't even think about like killing other humans. And, you know... I'll say it again, this is going to be a running theme with Romero's movies, is the general lack of communication. People just, you know, having to deal with each other and just making everything worse. And part of this even manifests with, you know, the townsfolk, first off, but also just the army. Because they're trying to keep a lid on this. And they're trying to... Well, they're trying to keep a lid on this, and they're trying to keep as little information as possible from getting out, but at the same time, everyone's panicking because now there's a bunch of government guys in hazmat suits with guns dragging them out of bed at like 3 in the morning. 
And now the idea that there's some kind of virus going around and they're still not telling them anything, well, it just makes the whole problem worse for them. And if it's worse for them, they make it worse for the army because, you know, these are farmers. A lot of them probably have guns, so they end up shooting back. And to make it even worse, like, the scientist in charge can't get, like, authorization to go back to his lab and work on, like, a cure or an antidote if such thing a thing was even possible. Uh, the military hasn't even told a lot of their guys why they're there. So what ends up happening is that, you know, the army, the local townsfolk treat the army almost like they're not the army trying to keep order in a you know place that's in crisis. They treat them like they're, you know, occupiers. They treat them like they're an invading army. And to make it worse, like, the degree of disconnection that the army has to the point where when they're burning people, a lot of them are, like, rifling through their pockets for, you know, valuables. And we follow, like, our main character, his wife, and a couple of their friends as they try to just wait, just wait the whole thing out, basically. The only problem is that they're having to do this by moving around, which means that they can't stay in one place too long or the army's going to hunt them down because they're worried they're going to break the quarantine. Uh, yeah, um, aged, aged well in a very different way. Again, it's, it's far from being Romero's best movie, but I, I think it's definitely worth a watch, especially given the fact that, you know, the rage virus... The whole rage virus idea has been done a lot since then. I think it's interesting to see one of the places where that originated from, and it's from here. All right, now we're jumping back a little bit in time, because this is Romero's most famous movie, Night of the Living Dead. His director's debut, his classic. We open with the famous scene of a brother and sister visiting a graveyard, they come across a man that they at first think is just, you know, drunk. But the brother gets attacked, the sister flees into a nearby farmhouse, and there she meets Ben and a few other, you know, refugees. And they're boarding up the house and stockpiling supplies. And yeah, this is really, like, the start of Romero's general thesis. It's not the undead you need to worry about, it's the other survivors. It's the paranoia that sets in. Because Ben and one of the other, like the old man in the house, are constantly arguing because, you know, one of them wants to, because the old man wants to, like, go down to the basement and just barricade every, themselves in and just ride the whole thing out. Ben wants to, you know, have the option of moving if they have to. So there's a few scenes where they try and, like, you know, procure a vehicle to get out, and none of it goes well. And it doesn't escalate too much, generally, but it does give the whole thing a tense atmosphere, and it keeps it interesting, despite the fact that the majority of the movie takes place in, like, one house. <laughs> Aside from, like, some scenes at the beginning and end, it's just the house and the barn that's adjacent to it. Uh, Yeah, like, honestly... Zombies in this style have been done so much just because of this movie's popularity that I am still impressed by how well it holds up today. 
because, you know, it's not terribly gory. It's not the effects that's, you know, the terror behind it. It's the general mood and the atmosphere and the tone to the point where, in addition to getting a lot of praise from critics for it, it was also led to a great... Um, it also led to a sort of, you know, great call for reforming the, like, rating system for movies because at the time they didn't have, like, an R rating. Not, it's complicated, but basically there wasn't any formal rule saying that, you know, children should not be allowed into this movie without being accompanied by an adult. This was actually one of the more famous early columns by Roger Ebert before he, you know, before he was, like, nationwide famous, but it was basically him calling for a new rating system and basically trying to shame, you know, parents for bringing their kids to this movie and theater owners for letting said kids into this movie because, you know, it's not over the top with the gore and the effects, but it's freaky just because of the atmosphere and tone and the fact that, like, the survivors are at each other's throats just as much as the dead are. And, yeah, that's always the... Um, funny thing about it is just the idea that it's one of the most famous zombie movies of all time, and the word zombie is not spoken. They're just referred to as those things. But, so after this, and a little side note, because it's related to one of my other favorite, like, 80s horror movies and zombie movies in general, is Return of the Living Dead. Uh, for those that don't know, the reason why George Romero's later zombie movies like Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead are just of the dead and not of the living dead. Uh, George Romero had a co-creator for Night of the Living Dead named John Russo. And I'm going to be frank, Russo, I don't understand exactly what he contributed <laughs> to this because, you know, Romero's later movies in the Dead uh, series kind of petered out a little bit. We'll get to that, but, like, Russo has not done much of anything that's worth talking about other than, like, sort of a... other than basically trying to do for Night of the Living Dead what George Lucas did with, like, the Star Wars things, like, re-release them with, you know, updated, big air quotes there, effects, and some additional footage. But it just made the whole thing stupid. The music is bad. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to quote, like, Jay Bauman of Red Letter Media on this. John Russo is just terrible at everything he does. But when they sort of, like, went their separate ways, when they went their separate ways, the compromise was that, you know, they could each do their own thing with it. Russo got rights to use the phrase Living Dead for the title. I mean, it wasn't the first or last movie to use that in the title, but, you know, as far as this con. As far as this franchise went, he had the rights to that title. I don't know why, but that's why um, Romero's is just of the dead. And I bring this up because a lot of people seem to think Return of the Living Dead is a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. It really isn't. Like, they reference it as a movie, which is hilarious because that movie came out like 10 years before Scream did, and we've already got a movie where... You know, you've got 
a horror movie where the characters are aware of other horror movies and the tropes involved in it. But yeah, tangent over, back on target. <laughs> so again, we've got Dawn of the Dead, which I think, even though, you know, as I mentioned, Rubenstein is asking for a lot for licensing for home releases, I feel like as many people have probably seen Dawn of the Dead as Night of the Living Dead. Um, it was released overseas as Zombie with a different score in Italy. Uh, done by the progressive rock band Goblin, which, go listen to those guys. They got some wonderful music. But it is, in the sense, a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, although it doesn't contain any characters from the previous film. It does take place in the same universe, though, in the same general area. And the first one dealt with a single group of survivors in a farmhouse. This shows the larger-scale effects it kind of doubles as a satire of consumerism and just American consumer culture. And the, one of the ways that's most evident is that the group of survivors with Kenfori in it, as our main character, they, they're hiding out. They're basically barricading themselves in the back rooms of a mall, like a big shopping mall. And the general sort of, like, wild behavior of some later interlopers, which is basically just a biker gang. And I'm pretty sure Tom Savini, the makeup artist, had, like, a a cameo, either as one of the bikers or a uh, zombie. I don't remember off the top of my head. But, you know, it was, like, really... I'd say it's on par quality-wise with Night of the Living Dead. In fact, on a technical level, I'd say it's probably even better. Um... It dials the horror back in favor of a little bit of like horror comedy because those bikers, when they come in, it's like they're running circles around the zombies because they're driving their motorcycles inside the mall and to the point where they're actually just like throwing, comically throwing pies at them. And there's even some scenes earlier where uh, Fori and another one of the survivors are just running through with like a shopping cart trying to scoop up supplies and they're almost like making a game out of it like like running a gauntlet but you know sort of the satire of consumer culture even in the midst of the apocalypse which was really fun but unfortunately it also set people's expectations a little up and that's kind of the reason why a lot of people didn't like the next movie in the series, Day of the Dead, when it came out. Because, you know, it was... It's coming off Dawn of the Dead, which had its, like, really goofy moments, although it was still a good horror movie. And this one is, like, really, really grim. It's really bleak throughout the whole thing. It's just following a group of survivors in a bunker in Florida, and they're split between some soldiers, uh, led by Joe Pilato, uh, and some scientists. And part of it is that there's one scientist who believes the undead can be conditioned into being docile. And, you know, again, with the whole miscommunication thing, the soldiers find out about this, and they get mad at the scientists for keeping the secret. And they begin to think he's crazy but he didn't tell them about this because they, because, you know, he knew that they'd think he's crazy. So it just becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. And 
again, it's very bleak the whole way out, but it does have a sort of hopeful ending, which is one of the funny reasons why I think Return of the Living Dead was preferred by fans and critics when it first came out, because it came out the same summer as this, and funnily enough, Reanimator. Uh, Return of the Living Dead is the fan favorite because it's funny from that year, but thematically it's so, so much darker and has a much more like downbeat ending. So it was always just sort of a funny thing for me to think about. And funnily enough, it does seem like some of the zombies can be conditioned in a way. With Land of the Dead, which was the first of the ones to come out post-2000. It came out in 2005. It's got uh, John Leguizamo, uh, Asi Argento. It's got cameos from the effects artists Tom Savini and Greg Nicotero. Uh, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright, actually, as well. Because I think Shaun of the Dead came out, like, the year prior to this. And it focuses on... There's a sort of, like, semi-feudal government existing in the Golden Triangle area of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it's protected on two sides by the rivers, and it's got an electric fence over a land land bridge that's called the Throat. And everyone else is living in slums, and the rich and powerful are living in a luxury high-rise called the Fiddler's Green. And here's the problem. In addition to that class divide, making, you know, having some common cause between everyone in the area a bit difficult, you've also got the problem of the zombies are getting smarter, to the point where they are, you know, not spoiling too much here, but to the point where they actually figure out how to get across the river. And, again, it's bleak the whole way out, but like Day of the Dead, it has sort of a hopeful ending. Uh, not so much... Yeah, not so much to talk about with this one. It's a pretty solid entry, I'd say. Um, the next one doesn't have quite as much light going for it inside. Uh, it's Diary of the Dead. And this was Romero's contribution to found footage horror. And there's a group of film students that band together during the start of the outbreak, and we'll get into that. I don't inherently dislike found footage. I liked the the rec movies, one and two. Um, But it does have some issues generally, to the point where it's like, a lot of movies, I'm like, why the fuck are you filming this? Would be my question to the character who's supposedly filming this in-universe. It's like, if that were me, I'd just drop the camera and run. But, you know, there is at least some vague reason. Uh, Jason Creed, who's the main character here, he's a film student with dreams of being a documentary filmmaker. Uh, funnily enough, they were in the middle of making like a low-budget horror film for college credits during this. and But it does also kind of get across Romero's general attitude with these movies, especially given the fact that, you know, it's the whole staring at a car crash idea. The idea... And, like, they berate him several times in the movie for this, the fact that he's still filming at, like, crisis points. The fact that he doesn't seem to, like, give any of the others much space to just, like, process their emotions when they're in a very bizarre spot. 
but there is at least but it's also the commentary on you know social media because you know paradoxically social media makes the truth both easier and harder to find easier because anyone can post but you know harder because anyone can post instead of just three liars now you've got to sift through you know quarter of a million truth tellers and a quarter of a million liars and you know if you don't have much context it's hard to tell the two apart it just ends up becoming noise if you can't sift through it and i will give it credit um there's sort of narration from one of the survivors in it that she's editing it like after the fact so there's some excuse as to why we have like non-diegetic music uh, why we have, like, newsreel footage and stuff that our characters that we're following weren't there for. So, there, yeah, there's newsreel footage edited in. There's music that wasn't, like, ambient sound. So, it at least it's hedging its bets there. And, you know, this is Romero, like I said. Um, it all has a purpose, and the sort of no-frills production kind of becomes an asset and it has the sort of general pessimistic tone near the end you know she's doing the narration about like and she said that the reason Jason said he was doing this was because he wanted to preserve it for posterity for whoever's left and hopefully save some lives and the narrator openly wonders are we worth saving going through this because she shows this video of these two guys using you know the zombies as target practice and then there's just one that they didn't treat it different most of the others they just lashed to a tree with a rope and just you know practiced but there was another that they like hang hung her from a tree with a rope tied in her hair and they just like blew her head off with a shotgun so that it would just drop and it kind of shows it kind of shows the thing that kind of became a bit of a meme later on on the internet was just the idea that the unfortunate thing is a lot of people would probably look forward to this because it means they could shoot well quote unquote people without getting into trouble for it but you know it's the whole thing about social media and the news that Romero's kind of harping on he was a bit ahead of his time I would say it's not a great movie but it's not terrible I don't think any of the dead movies are terrible uh, the last one, unfortunately, I do have to say, was probably the worst. It's the last of the dead films to be made, Survival of the Dead, and it was Romero's last overall. We have, see, in Diary of the Dead, there's a bunch of AWOL National Guard soldiers who appeared briefly. Uh, they just kind of, like, rob our survivors and take their supplies, basically everything except their vehicle and weapons. And they flee to Plum Island off of Delaware. And they land in the middle of a feud between two local families, uh, both Irish descendants or possibly first generation, I'm not sure. One of the Muldoons and one of the O'Flynn's. Now, the O'Flynn's are taking the, you know, fire and blood approach here. They're just, they've got the conventional approach. They're rounding up people to just go kill the undead. The Muldoons, meanwhile, are trying to keep their infective relatives safe and confined in the hopes that a cure can be found someday. And, you know, it's not like the O'Flynn's are pushing anyone around. They're both pretty heavily armed, but, you know, 
our guardsmen land in the middle of this and they try to arbitrate even though they both even though they think they're both kind of fucking stupid they're both being kind of fucking assholes about this whole thing cuz i mean to be fair to the muldoons what they're doing is kind of stupid but the reason they got into trouble with the o- the reason they started beefing with the O'Flins was because the O'Flins tried to kill a Muldoon who came back as a zombie, basically without asking if it was okay. So, it's not really much to talk about, unfortunately. It's just kind of Romero's themes over again. I wouldn't say it's terrible, like a lot of people were saying it, but it kind of feels like a bit lackluster compared to like even Land of the Dead or Diary of the Dead. Just feels like generic cheap zombie movie, and the fact that it was like late early two thousands, you know, it was two thousand nine. So the fact that most of these effects are like cheap digital shit instead of the practical effects that they were doing doesn't exactly help. But you know, they're all worth a watch. Uh, most of them can be found on a streaming service like Peacock or Tubi or Prime, Prime Video. So all of that, all of that's worth checking out. Uh, whether you're a Romero buff who just hasn't seen all the dead movies, whether you like zombies, or whether you're new to this and you want to see what happened after you know Night of the Living Dead. And now we go to a different type of horror: old age. Yep, the amusement park. So like so yeah, this was a different kind of horrific. It was considered a lost film for a long time until 2019, I'm pretty sure. Um, it was shown a little bit in 1975, I think it was, uh, when it was released. We start with a service announcement from Lincoln Mazel, uh, as I mentioned, the guy who played Kuda in Martin. And using a amusement park as the setting, we follow this old man, nameless old man, wandering around about it, using it as an allegory for the anxieties and perils of getting old. Especially when you don't have, you know, relatives that can care for you, when you don't have money, uh, if you're in a place where there's not really good social services. It's also just raising awareness about how, you know, people can, people treat old people like assholes. Like, you know, in addition to the general, like, self-imposed, like, shame that kind of comes with not being, you know, big air quotes here, a productive member of society anymore. And just the fact that you get more frail as time goes on, the fact that people just generally don't pay you much mind at all. And, I mean, it's... I mean, a lot of this stuff's allegorical, so it doesn't act like a strictly speaking, like an amusement park, but there's scenes of, like, him getting brushed off, him getting ignored, uh, the operator's license where it's, like, bumper cars, but they're treating it like actual cars. And, you know, the old man doesn't get his license anymore, uh, the old woman drives, and then they get into an a- in an accident, quote-unquote, and the everyone just assumes it's her fault. And when he tries to step in and give his two bits, like, they don't treat his testimony as, you know, trustworthy because he wasn't wearing his glasses at the time. 
He just sits on a bench and tries to talk to some small children, and a guy basically just runs him off because he thinks he's like a pedo or some shit. But it's like, seriously, it's like you can't even, it's like I get that there are like people that do that, but, you know, you can't even just talk to children anymore. That's kind of the unfortunate thing. And, you know, it's just... I don't know, like, honestly, a lot of it just makes me sad thinking about it, because I know, because, you know, my grandmother had to put up with that shit in her nursing home for a little bit, God rest her soul, but it just showcases the, all the bullshit that the old people, that old people need to put up with, in the hopes that, you know, people will raise awareness about it, maybe, you know, some good can come out of people, like being afraid of this because you know it's all gonna happen to it's gonna happen to every single one of us eventually unless we figure out life extension, which isn't necessarily the most outlandish thing, but people just assume it is. And yeah, it's not like a standard horror movie; it's more like a narrative PSA, but it is freaky in its own right, especially given the sort of surrealist imagery. It was commissioned by a Lutheran society in Pens- in Philadelphia. And, you know, Mazel sort of ends on the high note of, you know, if you're asking what you can do, volunteer and raise awareness while you're still young enough to have a positive influence. So, you know, hopefully some good can come out of that because it's as true now as it was back in the 70s. Granted, we've got things like, you know, Meals on Wheels and AARP now, but, you know, that's no substitute for just being decent and helping out and helping out the elderly if you can. All right, so on to something a little more uh, positive for the outro. One of the last things that Romero was trying to do, because for a while he said he was retired because he was kind of disappointed with, you know, trying to make movies. And, I mean, it was trying to get him back into it, and he couldn't get it for a while because he was always kind of an outsider. It took the Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead <laughs> to get to get him back into it. It took a remake of one of his own movies to get him some credibility, even though he's made, like, two of the most iconic horror movies of all time. But the good news is that before he died of lung cancer in 2017, God rest his soul, he announced a closing installment of the Dead series. It was called Twilight of the Dead. And although he died before it could come to fruition, last I checked, as of April 2021, his co-writer Paolo Zelati and a couple of later additional screenwriters announced that the script had been finished and it would be explaining the fate of the zombie protagonists from Day and Land of the Dead. And it would basically take place at a point where humanity was, like, on the brink of extinction. So, I don't imagine it's going to get any less grim, just because it, as Romero is not doing it. But, yeah. Uh, hopefully, we'll get some updates on that as it comes out. I'd be really eager to see it. And, you know, I hope it lives up to the legacy of Romero, even if it kind of petered out near the end of it. So tomorrow we'll be talking about another iconic horror movie, Master of Horror Aficionado. 
we will be talking about Wes Craven. Hope you have a good night. Thanks for joining me. Stay safe. Signing off.